Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think if you poke around my family history long enough, you'll see quite a lot of mainly undiagnosed, because um, them's were the times, but sort of mental health problems. And then, so I think it's probably sort of underlying... Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours. My name's Yvette and this week I'm going to be chatting to Joss Roberts. He's a speaker on mental health and he's also the author of a new book which is called Anxious Man. I'm going to be chatting to him about all things panic attacks, anxiety and CBT. Josh Roberts, welcome to Mentally Yours. Hello, thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking about anxiety today quite in, in depth. First of all, when did you first start experiencing anxiety yourself? Well, so in a major way, um, it really started for me the morning after I had been to a party. So it sounds quite unlikely, but prior to that, I, I suppose I'd been a nervous-ish child, but I'd never been, I'd never had, I don't know, I had like maybe tiny panic attacks or what you would associate with what I would now identify as a panic attack. But really for me, it was kind of, I was completely fine or seemingly fine, went to a party, woke up the next morning. And everything had kind of collapsed. Have you any idea what triggered that? I don't know. I, th I think it's a combination of genetic factors. So I think if you poke around my family history long enough, you'll see quite a lot of mainly undiagnosed, because um, them's were the times, but sort of mental health problems. And then, so I think it's probably sort of underlying. And then, yeah, I was I'd, yeah, I, sort of confluence of lots of different things. I was stayed in a job that I wasn't particularly enjoying for maybe too long. I wasn't exercising at all. I was boozing a lot, not really sleeping. And so I think I was probably already slightly predisposed. And then the party pushed me over the edge. How did you actually, actually feel on that 
morning? Can you describe it? Yeah, I mean, it was like waking up in into if, if you if you've seen a movie where they kind of an actor or a character wakes up startled and kind of <gasps> it, it was basically like that. I woke up into a panic attack, and like I said, I'd had sort of miniature panic attacks previously. This one was just completely it was next level in terms of the intensity of it. So panic attacks for me, I understand they're different for different people. But for me, it's like an intensely physical experience, stomach knotted, breath, you know, very short, hearts pumping, going nuts, eyes dilated, skin is sort of sweaty, clammy, hot, but cold, all that sort of thing. Um, and then accompanying that physical terror is a, is a very singular mental one, which is the idea that at some point, all this physical stuff with my body is going to become too much and I'm going to have a heart attack or, or pass out. And lots of people, it's very common. People think of panic attacks when they're in them as being, you know, heart attacks. And the reality is thankfully, whilst they're terrifying, um, no one's died of a panic attack yet. So it was extremely intense and long. So usually a panic attack would last for, I don't know, 30 seconds a minute when I'd had these little tremors before this one was, three or four hours. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was really intense. Oh, and it would sort of come, maybe it would subside fractionally and then it would, you know, a sort of new wave would come, would sort of appear. So yeah, it was pretty grim. I went to the, I went, obviously went to A&E a bunch of times. I went like three different times to A&E and uh, went to see two different NHS GPs. There's sort of general prognosis and it's not their fault. You know, the NHS just isn't at the moment set up to deal with problems like this, but um the sort of general prognosis that it was that it was a, a hangover gone wrong. Um, and, you know, the prescription was a cup of tea and get a good night's sleep sort of thing. Problem was <laughs> couldn't sleep. So, um, yeah, five days after, five days after the initial thing, having barely slept and been in a constant state of panic, I ended up going to, um, to see a private GP just coughed up the cash and, uh, and he very quickly diagnosed me with a generalized anxiety disorder. After that initial very long panic attack, how did it then manifest? Yeah, so it morphed. It went from being a kind of immediate fear about dying to being a more, well, generalised, I guess, um, all pervasive fear of pretty much anything. So the definition of a, um, a generalised anxiety disorder is, well, obviously you worry about fucking anything, you know. So things like getting fired or getting dumped or... Um, I get a whole bunch of really weird, what they call sensory motor stuff. So I worry about forgetting to breathe or not being able to swallow or being constantly alive to the rhythm of blinking and things like that. So you have those initial worries. And then what you do is you worry about those worries. This is a slightly um, difficult concept to grasp, but it's the idea that you know, normal people might worry about not sleeping normal inverted commas, people like me worry that we'll spend our whole lives worrying about not sleeping. Does that make sense? It's like a second order, almost derivative of the original worry. And then the third thing is is guilt. So you find this with people who suffer from anxiety disorders uh, and also you know, depressive conditions and things like that, where you look at your life and go, what on earth do I have to worry about? And of course, the reality is nothing. But it's a disease or not disease, but it's a condition. It's something that exists outside of me and therefore it's not really my fault. It takes a while to get there. <laughs> How did you deal with everyday life through this? I would say in the, in the initial first sort of five days, um, 
very badly. Um, so I was barely sleeping. I didn't see anyone. Um, so I, I was called in sick to work. Actually, that's not true. I did go in occasionally, but I would get there, you know, run into the loo after a few minutes, run into the loos and sort of burst into tears kind of thing. And then make my excuses and shuffle home. It stayed really bad for me for about a year. And so after a couple of weeks, I started to develop, I don't know about coping mechanisms, but ways of seeming fine externally whilst crumbling internally. Um, and so it's something I talk about quite a lot in the book is this idea that you really can be fine externally and, you know, be disintegrating internally. And lots of friends have said to me, having having read the, the book, oh, I feel terrible that we didn't know or we couldn't spot or didn't realise it was as bad as it was. You know, you said you had a problem, but didn't realise it, it was as bad as it was. And the answer is not, not I mean, partly consciously, you're trying to cover cover it up because you don't want to be, have a problem. You know, no one wants to be a problem. But also because actually um, it, that's just the nature of it. It's the, you know, it can, for me at least, it's very, there's a real duality to it. Um, and so, yes, in answer to your question, uh, I was a bit, I was messed for the first kind of couple of weeks. And then after that, I think I started to get better at either disguising it or, or living with it. When did you decide you wanted to share this by, in terms of sort of writing about it and telling people about it? Yeah, well, I was always really chatty about it. And I, I think that is sli- maybe slightly odd for particularly blokes to, to, be quite open about it. In a way, I was lucky it was as bad as it was because I had to, I didn't have an option. You know, when you're spending, you know, an hour of every day at work in the loose crying, uh, your boss gets slightly suspicious. You know, either you've got a bowel complaint or a cocaine addiction or something that means that you're going to the loo this much. And so eventually I had to, you know, I, I started talking about it with people. And once you've said it once, I, Again, it's just my experience, but once you've spoken about it once, it gets, each time you do it, it gets easier and easier. Um, and then I, the, the writing of the book came, I had been talking to a friend who's a journalist. So I used to work in advertising and I was talking to a journalist at the same newspaper and he'd had a similar problem to me and he suggested, oh, you should, you should write about this. It wasn't something I'd really considered, but I pitched it to, to the Times newspaper who published the article and we just had this incredible reaction to it. Sort of, I mean, hundreds of messages from people around the world. And on the back of that, someone asked me to write a book. <laughs> so it's called Anxious Man. Uh, what do you cover in it? We talk about all sorts. So it's kind of rooted in my own experience. I hope that it's a funny book. So there are jokes, which isn't necessarily the most obvious. It doesn't obviously make a uh, a sort of topic or vector for telling jokes, but it is, I hope, humorous. But it's kind of starting from my own experience, what, what's it like to live through that moment that I described earlier, where you wake up to realise that your mind has collapsed? What's it like to experience a full-scale disintegration of the mental faculty? Um, and then how do you go about getting better? And I'm convinced that the things that stop you from having one of these things in the first place are the same things that help you to get better. And so I hope that the book is, of course, helpful for people who've had this problem or similar problems. Um, but also, if you haven't, there are lessons in there, hopefully, um, that would be helpful. We also look at interesting things, you know, we poke around things like social media. We look at the news cycle and how that affects mental health, sleep, 
booze, stuff like that. What helped you personally in terms of getting better? So I would say the the kind of anchor in me getting better. And that there's a number of different stages, but primarily for me, it's been a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which I know doesn't work for everyone, but for me, it's just been incredible. Changing my relationship with alcohol completely. So I've become a complete bore. <laughs> well, no, a complete bore. And then um, also things like exercise. Um, so fairly standard stuff. Um, I also maybe in a more subtle way. And when you have a problem that's as long-term or rather when you have a problem that is as immediate as mine was, like you asked at the start, what was the trigger? You spend a whole load of time trying to figure out, okay, what's the exact thing that caused this problem and da, da, da. And actually I would say one of the key components of my own recovery is accepting that there may not be a particular trigger, that this might just be completely random. And once you've realized that you can let go of the search for the specific combination of things that's giving you anxiety and start to get better. I'm really thrilled actually that you mentioned CBT because we've mentioned it a few times on the podcast. Um, some people, like you say, it works for some people, some people it doesn't. Can you tell us a bit more about that, what you actually do in that process and what kind of things have helped yeah. specifically? Is that all right? Yeah, I was, Pro Green wasn't a fan. I, I was listening to the episode with, with him and he was saying he wasn't a fan. But CBT starts from the premise that our thoughts feelings and behaviours are all interconnected. So if you have a negative or depressive or anxious thought, that will give rise to anxious feelings in your body. And then you may end up, you know, exhibiting certain behaviours as a result of that. And then your mind takes the fact that you've exhibited the behaviour as evidence that the thought is correct and the, the sort of loop goes on and the knot gets tighter and tighter. CBT is the idea that if you can arrest the thoughts before they develop into feelings and behaviours and challenge them with logic and evidence, what you actually very often find is that the thoughts are completely illogical, unproven by evidence. And it really is at the start a very manual process of going, you know, thought pops into your head, I'm a useless piece of shit. And then you have to go, wait a minute, what's the evidence? Um, haven't I got some great friends? Would they really be hanging around with me if I was this useless? Or haven't I, I don't know, you know, got a good job or whatever it might be. And after a while, like I said, it becomes automatic. You still have the thoughts. The idea of CBT is not to try to eliminate intrusive thoughts because, well, that's just not possible. But what you can do is change the way that you react to them. The thing that I would say about CBT, for me at least, and again, this isn't the same for everyone, but for, for blokes, when I speak to other men who've had this problem. It, it, it's particularly appealing because it is such a process, such, such a real process. And I think that appeals to the sort of particularly male attitude of I've got a problem that needs fixing. I've got a leak that needs mending or, you know, whatever it is, because you write things down and you take notes and you have to practice certain things. And, and then after a while, what you discover is the periods of convulsion become shorter and the distances between them grow longer. And after a while, you start to have more good days than bad days. And then you you sort of fall into the trap of thinking you're cured and then something bad happens and, you know, it sort of goes back. But it that's how that's how it's worked for me. Can we talk a bit now about sort of men and mental health? Do you cuz I think a lot more people talk about mental health these days and I'm do you but do you still think that it's harder for men to talk about mental health and have you had 
specific conversations with other guys that you think are sort of particularly gendered? Yes. So it's it's an interesting topic. I would say uh, it's obviously getting better. Um, You know, Muppets like me wouldn't be given book deals if it wasn't. We are starting to see, I think, the effects of what happens at a sort of celebrity level. I think we're starting to see that trickle through. It's one of the things, so lucky enough to have Stephen Fry write the forward for the book. And he talks about that um, in his forward saying how we've had the first wave, Prince Harry, you know, Stephen Fry, these kind of folks. And now we're hopefully moving into the second wave, which is, you know, more, more normal people. Naturally, that starts with people from positions of privilege like my own, you know, white, middle class, heterosexual, the rest of it. But hopefully after a while that, that filters through. The male problem is, is particularly interesting. Uh, the incidence rates are much higher amongst women than they are amongst men. Um, but for whatever reason, men tend to end up killing ourselves at a much more alarming rate than women do. Why? Well, it must be that we react differently when we have one of these problems than women do. And I think a big part of that is not talking about it enough. I don't think it's our fault. So we've had a good few hundred years of social conditioning, which would suggest that as men, this this kind of vulnerability, fragility, um, isn't something that we should share. And actually, if you look at the science, the sort of medical history of this, it goes back even further. You know, melancholia and the hysteria, the kind of ye olde depression and, and anxiety for centuries were considered to be, you know, tied to movements of the uterus. And because men don't have uteruses, I don't think. <laughs> don't quote me on that. Um, as a result of that, you know, men couldn't experience these problems. Ergo, women have had a thousand years of head start on talking about these things than versus us. But I do think things are changing. I think it's a really, really exciting time for, for mental health. And um, I'm quietly confident that, you know, in 10 years, something else will be the biggest killer of men under the age of 45. 50? I think it's 45. 45. But yeah, also don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure it's in the 40s. Yeah. What kind of advice would you give to guys in terms of supporting male friends who have gone through things like you've experienced? Yeah. It's, so this is a question I get asked a lot is, and sometimes it's men asking about their friends or their brothers or their dads or whatever, but also sometimes it's girlfriends, mums, that sort of thing. It is difficult because particularly when someone doesn't want to talk about something, if they really are resistant to the idea of opening up, um, there's not an awful lot you can do. You can be persistent and you can be present and you can make sure that they know that if they want to open up, you're an ally and someone that they can do that with, but you can't force someone to, to open up. One thing I would say, and again, this is like sweeping generalizations, but it's stuff that I, I, I always recommend to people. And again, appeals to the, there's something about it. Going to see a doctor in the first instance, not to a therapist, not to a mental health nurse or something like that. Go and see someone with a white, th- white coat and a stethoscope. And there's something about it being diagnosed as a real thing in the same breath as in the same way that they would diagnose cancer, hay fever, eczema, whatever it is. Okay. You've got a problem that exists outside of you and here's how you can go and get help. I, in my experience, when I suggest that to other people, they've come back and said, that was the thing that proved to be the turning point. And are there any practical things that friends could do or family or girlfriends if a boyfriend or husband is experiencing a panic attack? It's difficult because the the last thing you want to hear when you're depressed is to be told to cheer up. And, and when you're anxious, 
you know, to be told not to, to worry. But like I said, no one has, no one's, no one dies of panic attacks. They're scary. They're terrifying, but they're also moments in time. Once you've experienced a few of them, and I've been unlucky enough in my life to experience more than most. Once you've had a few of them, you, you do gain a sense of objectivity where you can, oh, I'm having, I'm in a particular, you know, moment in time, but this moment in time will pass. Um, I think it's, to do all the basics of friendship, but really, really well. So, you know, be persistent. Like I mentioned, people with mental health problems, whether or not they're having a panic attack or or not, uh, can be lousy friends. You know, we're very changeable. Um, we can be laughing at a party and then crying in the cab on the way home, or we can want X and then want Y, want to talk about it and then want to, you know, not want to talk about it. So persistence is important, but it's also just all the, all the normal stuff, text people, take, introduce people to other people, uh, take them to things. Um, you know, my girlfriend is very good at telling me she's very supportive and gives me tea and hugs when I need them, but she's also very good at saying, well, you haven't been to the gym for two weeks. So what do you expect? Of course, you're not going to be feeling as good as if you had, let's go to the gym. And, um, so sometimes it's a, it's a kind of combination of, you know, tough love and, normal love. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about anxiety or yourself in general or the book? Well, aside from to suggest that people buy it, (laughs) which I really would recommend, this is by far the best book I've ever written. Um, it being my first book. No, I, I guess we've been, we've been discussing today. I think the most important thing to recognize is that mental health problems doesn't matter if it's, you know, anxiety or depression or whatever are, cancers of the mind. So the longer you leave them, the bigger they become and the harder they become to operate on or or remove. So if you feel like you've been low for longer than would be normal, or if you've noticed a change in the behaviours or personality of a close friend or whatever, get help and get help as quickly as you can. Um, I'm lucky, like I said, my problem was so bad that within a week of it kicking off, I was already kind of in a process of, of getting better. Um, and that's the second thing um, that I would just kind of really underline and put in bold is it always gets better. So, and it's always worth cracking on until it does, because um, in a way, naturally, I wish that this had never happened to me, but in a way, the sort of stark relief of living through something this terrible makes you really appreciate and particularly enjoy when you don't have the condition. And so it always gets better and it's always worth waiting until it does. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. If you've been struggling with any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116-123. You can also find them online at samaritans.org. You can find us online. We have a Twitter account, which is at MentallyYRS. And you can also join our lovely Facebook group, which is simply called Mentally Yours. See you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.